For only the second time in UK television history, as far as I can determine, the infamous fourth season of Erwolf recently began a screening on the cable channel Five Star. Erwolf's rerun history in this country has been quite odd. After the original run on the ITV network from 1984 to 1986, Erwolf flew off into the memory, only to resurface for a full ITV rescreening in 1995. The popularity of cable TV meant the series was then a staple of cable channels, appearing on D-Max, Forces TV, Bravo and others. But unusually, with the final two episodes of the CBS seasons omitted and nary a glimpse of the syndicated season. The 1995 ITV rerun was the only other time I recall this season receiving an erring, and even then, in my region, it was relegated to the wee hours of the morning. Until this past few weeks, I'd never watched more than a few episodes of the fourth season. Some were even unaware there was a fourth season. For those who fall into this bracket, some clarification. Erwolf was cancelled after its third season on CBS television due to a mix of falling ratings and actor Jan Michael Vincent's highly publicised personal problems. This presented series makers Universal with a quandary. Erwolf was a very expensive show, costing upwards of nearly $1 million per segment, and with only 55 episodes in the can, they couldn't recoup their losses in syndication. See, back in the Stone Age of television, before physical media and then streaming, TV shows needed a minimum of 65 episodes, but preferably closer to 100, to be profitably sold for stripping, i.e. screening on a daily basis in repeats on various stations across the United States. To make up for the shortfall, Universal's Money Men decided to knock out a further season of the show on the cheap, purely for the syndication market, to bump up their episode count and thus start earning that lucrative syndication money. This will have been particularly appealing to them, as actors receive a syndication bonus, or used to do anyway, when a series passes the minimum episodes needed. With Erwolf only running for 55 episodes, none of the original actors will have qualified for this, thus saving them some money on the deal. To make further savings, production was moved to Canada, where new episodes will be shot, crucially involving none of the original cast and crew. This will also have saved them money, as, at this time, Canadian actors weren't eligible for residuals. Now, Erwolf was unusual for the American cookie-cutter TV sausage factory of the time. It was unique. The star of the show, Jan Michael Vincent, may have been a tad stiff on occasion, but he came with a respectable pedigree. He'd had a successful movie career before his alcohol problems started costing him work, but he seemed to have made a comeback with the miniseries The Winds of War. Vincent also had an edge. He wasn't a standard pretty boy like John Eric Hexham or Chuck Wagner. He had a dark side, perfect for the role of Stringfellow Hawk. Also, that name, Stringfellow Hawk. Come on, that was cool. Vincent was backed by Ernest fucking Borgnine. No routine TV actor, Borgnine was Hollywood royalty, with more character in his face than anyone since Walter Matthau. He was a major movie star, with roles in Escape from New York, Convoy, The Black Hole, The Wild Bunch, The Dirty Dozen, and loads more. You don't just replace Ernest fucking Borgnine with some no-mark actor from TV land. <sighs> 
The other way Airwolf was unique was the score. Easily one of the finest ever created for a TV show, Sylvester Levey's score for Erwolf mixed orchestral arrangements with synthesizers to magnificent effect, sounded like nothing else on TV. So just to piss all over that memory, here's the tinny plastic sounding cover version from the Canadian season. work in Airwolf was also second to none, featuring the cream of Hollywood stunt pilots performing magnificent aerial during do on a weekly basis. The look, feel and tenor of the show oozed out quality, like a Mr. Potato Head growing plasticine hair, from the almost cinematic art direction to the credits font to the locations and characterization. So, of course, none of these made the transition to Canada. The score is a generic Canadian action drama thing that intrudes instead of complementing every scene. The actors are all straight from the Canadian TV phone book. The show looks like mud, apart from when it cuts to stock footage from the original show, and then it looks really good. The cutting between the scenes of Erwolf and the sunny California skies to the actors in the rainy Canadian forest is laughably bad. The font used in the opening titles is crappy. It all looks like it was shot in the worst and wettest Canadian forest they could find. The budget dropped from in between $900,000 to $1 million an episode to $300,000. Clearly, corners hadn't so much been cut as hacked off with a rusty machete. Predictably, the cast that replaced Vincent and Ernest fucking Borgnine were all no-mark actors from TV land. Barry Van Dyke, the kind of bland, non-threatening leading man that populated these things in the 80s, was cast as Sinjin Hawk, String's brother, who you'll recall was MIA in Vietnam, and the catalyst for Hawk keeping Erwolf in the first place. Well, according to this new season, he wasn't MIA and hadn't been since 1975. Apparently, Sinjin was rescued by the firm, now renamed the company for no reason at all, and press ganged into working for them under deep cover. Nobody thought to mention this to String, and no one on the production side of the show cared if this new piece of news flatly contradicted the series thus far. When the fourth season opens, Sinjin has been captured in Burma by a man who wants Erwolf for his own nefarious ends. Ignoring that Erwolf was a top-secret, need-to-know project, that Sinjin wouldn't even know what the fucking Erwolf was, Sinjin also has had his backstory changed, and he too is now a crack pilot himself, which he isn't and never was. The whole point of the show was String was the pilot in Sinjin's unit, and he was the pilot when Sinjin went down, something that haunted him throughout the series. Barry Van Dyke is dependable, solid and handsome in a thankless role, where he displays none of Vincent's edge. To be fair to Van Dyke, it's entirely possible the scripts never gave him the opportunity to display any range or depth. 
Next up was Joe Santini, played by Michelle Scarabelli. Scarabelli is easily the most interesting character in the new ensemble and treated every bit as badly as you would imagine a woman to be treated in a show like this at the time that it was made. Introduced as Dominic's niece with a long-held fascination with aviation, Joe was a capable pilot herself. So much so that at some point in between seasons, String and Dom have taught her how to pilot Erwolf. So why is she sidelined whenever a combat mission takes place? Still, Scarabelli at least looks awake, which is more than can be said for Geraint Wynne Davis, who plays smug, snarky pilot Major Mike Rivers. I don't really see the point of Rivers. If Santini and Hawk are both capable of piloting Erwolf, why do we need another pilot? Rounding out the new ensemble was Anthony Sherwood as Jason Locke, the new liaison between the Erwolf team and the company. Locke, in addition to having nowhere near as cool a codename as Archangel, wore boring regulation off-the-peg suits and none of those natty white duds Alex Cord wore. He's also really dull and can also fly Erwolf. <sighs> the opening episode, Blackjack, features Jan-Michael Vincent as String in an almost comatose performance. String should have been the one to rescue Sinjin, perhaps dying in the process, but Vincent seems so out of it he barely seems able to walk, let alone convince as an action hero. Joe and String, as we open the episode, are piloting a Santini Ur chopper together when String receives a note about his brother. In short order, Dominic's fat body double, who bears a not at all striking resemblance to Ernest fucking Borgnine, is killed off, and String is caught in the explosion, rendering him useless, and he spends most of the episode confined to a hospital bed, presumably to hide Vincent's general apathy. Joe pilots Erwolf to try and find Sinjin, but she in turn is located by Rivers and Locke, both of whom are after Erwolf. The lair where Hawk hid Erwolf is now a high-tech bat cave, and also much smaller, with no explanation. For those who may have been wondering, Alex Cord's character of Archangel has been mysteriously reassigned to the Middle East and is never mentioned again. Rivers, Santini and Locke fly out to Burma and rescue Sinjin in a horribly edited action sequence where the muddy new footage is cut into crystal clear old footage in obvious and hysterically inept ways. They bring Sinjin home and he reunites with String at the latter's hospital bed. String tells Sinjin he doesn't want to die in hospital, so Sinjin takes him somewhere and he's never seen again. The episode seems not at all concerned with telling us what happened to the old star of the show, you know, the one we had the emotional connection to. We don't know if String died, if he was tucked to his cabin to fish, or if Sinjin euthanised him. Not a damn thing. It's all left ambiguous, presumably with the thought that if Vincent's career plummets any further, they could possibly tempt him back for another guest slot. The ending is even odder, narratively speaking. Jason Locke, after spending the episode being a hard-ass company man, suddenly has a change of heart and decides they should keep Erwolf a secret and do top-secret government stuff from the lure. For even flimsier reasons than in the original show. Presumably this means Joe Santini is now a member of the firm, sorry, company, and all the benefits that that entails. This opening episode, Blackjack, doesn't have a bad story. It's just so incompetently put together with bad writing, huge gobs of coincidence and a complete lack of interest in what the show was and its established lore. Now, the CBS seasons could be a tad inconsistent, but not to this level. Perhaps most egregious, though, the Canadian sequel doesn't have access to Erwolf herself. They have the studio mock-up for exterior shots, but the actual helicopter never makes an appearance in the Canadian season, with every single shot being stock footage from the earlier seasons or a remote control substitute. 
This looks exactly as bad as it sounds. With the second episode Escape, however, I'd started to warm to this new season slightly, largely because I'd been drinking. As much as I liked Vincent's edge, his constant state of drunkenness can't have been easy to deal with for the other actors, and replacing the entire cast makes it feel like an entirely different show, which is probably the best thing that could happen to it. Escape focuses on Joe Santini and a mission to retrieve top-secret papers from Istanbul. We'll ignore that Joe now seems to be a CIA agent without any training or anything like that, because that would upset The Last Jedi fans, and instead we'll focus on Scarabelli's endearing performance, and that the show has now started using espionage plots again. With no network to tell them to tone down the political stuff, this season can explore that aspect of Erwolf once more. Salvage has Sinjin and Rivers go to help a former firm employee who is hearing strange noises from an Indian burial ground. It turns out that there is a new prototype helicopter named Scorpion, which Erwolf must take down. If we again ignore that this KGB spying in the ass end of nowhere have managed to build another Erwolf, largely so the production team can reuse all the flying footage from the CBS episode Erwolf 2, then this episode also wasn't too bad. Barry Van Dyke's quite solid and dependable, and if he'd actually had a character to work with, maybe this wouldn't be too bad. My main gripe with this episode is that Locke flies Erwolf. Remember when it was a top-secret piece of hardware that took at least three highly trained people to fly, and even then they had to be exceptionally gifted and well-trained? Well, now they'll let any old numpty with a pilot's license fly. Nevertheless, if you can let all this go, and are suitably inebriated, there are some passable entries in Season 4. Not good, per se, but not completely awful. Death Train is quite fun, with Erwulf assigned to protect a train carrying a deadly nerve agent. Presumably there were too many canisters of the gas for Erwulf to carry them herself. Rogue Warrior also has a decent plot at heart. Star Trek's Robin Curtis is an agent assigned to finally retrieve Erwulf from Locke and Co, and Locke is framed for treason. There's a horrendous subplot with Major Mike Rivers and Curtis's character, but the actual framework for this episode is fine. The X-Files cigarette-smoking man William B. Davis makes his contractually obligated appearance. I swear that man has appeared in every single Canadian drama series ever made. Here he's a member of the firm. Sorry, the company. Stavrograd is a two-parter taking its cues from the Chernobyl disaster and as such carries on the tradition of political themes and introduces some continuity with characters from other episodes returning. Still not great though. Most of the other episodes are rather routine. The Mime Troop is about a... Mime Troop. It's every bit as interesting as it sounds. On the double is the obligatory Evil Twin episode, with Geraint Wynne-Davis taking the dual role. There are also a ton of episodes about new military equipment being stolen and Erwulf being required to get it back, which is fair enough, as there was a ton of those in the CBS seasons as well. The show comes out of its stupor towards the end of the run with the episode Malduke, which is easily the best episode of the fourth season, and had it been one of the CBS episodes and thus had some money behind it, it would probably have been one of the better episodes overall. Mal Duke is a strange mad scientist who wants to rid the world of contaminated people who he believes are creating an issue for regular people. To this end, Mal Duke rigs a Japanese tanker with explosives that could cause untold damage. Star Barry Van Dyke manages to rope his father Dick Van Dyke into guest starring as Mal Duke. 
Somebody clearly forgot to tell Van Dyke the Elder that this was a cheap syndicated knockoff TV show that exists only so the bean counters have enough episodes to make the sums work on a repeat package deal and he delivers an absolutely chilling and supremely effective performance. A performance that makes even more sense when it's revealed that Malduk is a cyborg. There are so many great questions raised in this episode that lent themselves to a possible sequel that sadly never happened. All credit to Dick Van Dyke for giving us one of the best Erwell villains since John Bradford Horn and Charles Moffat. Perhaps it's having his dad on set, but Barry Van Dyke raises his game for this episode. Throughout the show, Sinjin is tired and punchy, having worked constantly in some way since Nam began over 20 years ago, and he's desperate for a holiday. He talks frequently about quitting and retiring somewhere just to have a life. It's a really nice character beat that sadly has never paid off. There are mistakes, of course. Van Dyke Sr. refers to Sinjin as St. John rather than the correct pronunciation, and the apathy of all involved that nobody corrected him on the pronunciation of the lead character's name tells you everything you need to know about how quickly the show was made. The music is still shit, and the episode doesn't even feature Erwolf in the climax, which seems remarkably misguided. Still, the final scenes where Malduk locates the lure and is electrocuted before his head pops off are wonderfully done, especially the decapitated head lying on the floor whilst the eyes still blink and move. I know this was a simple effect, Dick Van Dyke's just lying under a built-up set floor, but it's really well shot and acted, and that really sells the horror of it. There's no comparison between the CBS series and this cheapo knockoff, but there were moments where this final season had better stories than the third CBS season. There's a welcome return to the political intrigue that made the first two seasons of Erwell fun, with stories set behind the Iron Curtain, plots concerning stolen plutonium, and, of course, the Erwell standby, other military equipment that is designed to be better than the lady herself, only for that to be proven to be an outright lie in the final dogfight. There's no escaping this season's overall cheapness, though. The over-reliance on stock footage means there are even more continuity gaffes than in the original seasons, and not having an actual Erwolf helicopter is incredibly noticeable. And don't get me started on the complete disregard for continuity. Scarabelli stated in her Starlog interview that all 24 scripts for the season were written and ready to go before the actors were cast, meaning there was very little the actors could do to develop an episode-to-episode continuity, and there was no room for improvisation. There was no way to let the actors respond to any personal chemistry either. They simply did what they could with what they had. The single most egregious element this season, though, is the music. Many episodes ended without a dogfight, and when they did, they rarely used the main theme in the body of the episodes, instead substituting a really generic score which was ill-fitted to the series' tone as established. The final insult was that the original composer, Sylvester Leve, didn't even receive a credit for the theme until a couple of episodes in, when presumably Leve's lawyers sent the production crew a strongly worded letter. Ultimately, Erwolf Season 4 is Erwolf in name only. It bears very little resemblance to the series Donald P. Belisario created. Its bargain basement production values really hinder the season, and despite scripts that flirt with being imaginative, and some actors who really are giving it their all, this version of Erwolf never really gets off the ground.
in the decade of the 1970s, even the great hero Superman was not spared the ravages of money-hungry producers. In these times of fear and confusion, the job of bringing him to screen was the responsibility of Richard Donner, a popular American director whose demand for verisimilitude had become a symbol of hope for fans of Superman. October. celebrates the near 40th anniversary of the film that launched the genre as the Man of Screen podcast celebrates Superman the Movie Night. Five episodes covering Superman the Movie. And that will include special guests. Tom Benya. Patrick Delmore. Bob Fisher. Scott Gardner. Dario Gonzalez. Gene Hendricks. Aaron Henley. Brian Hughes. Layla. Andrew Layla. J. David Weeder, but you can call me Dave. So set your favorite podcaster to Superman the Movie Month, right here on... .com Okay, let's get the show on the road with a look at some emails. Ryan Daly's emailed in. Hello, Ryan. Host of the Overlooked Dark... No, I host the Overlooked Dark Knight, don't I, with Michael Bailey. Host of Batman Nightcast with Chris Franklin over on the Fire and Not... Fire and Water Network. Fire and Water Podcast Network. Feedback on Palace episode 83, long delayed. Yeah, because this is episode 90-something. I forget. I don't really pay attention. Hello, Andy. Hello, Ryan. This email is several months overdue, and for that I apologise. Back in April, I promised to respond to the episode wherein you ranked the 18 films in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. See how tardy I am? See how tardy I am? That number is now two films out of date. I can't recall what disrupted my plans to reply to your episode, only that it probably fell into the nebulous category we podcasts often refer to as real-life shit. For the moment, though, I have free time to finally compare your ranking to my own. Before we begin, I want to mention that I thoroughly enjoyed listening to your episode and your reasoning for why you chose some movies over others. Even when I disagreed with your selections, which you'll see fairly early on in my list, I had no trouble empathising with your decision. More than that, you actually forced me to re-evaluate my position on some of these films. I know, right? Can you imagine this day and age changing your opinion because of an argument someone else made? How preposterous. Anyway, on to the list, and for the sake of any listeners who don't remember your ranking system, because it was half a year ago at this point, here's your order. Now, that was that was very nice, Ryan, because I don't remember how I ranked them. 
18, Thor The Dark World. 17, Iron Man 2. 16, Doctor Strange. 15, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. 14, Ant-Man. 13, Thor. 12, Thor Ragnarok. 11, Black Panther. 10, Guardians of the Galaxy. 9, Iron Man. 8, The Incredible Hulk. 7, Iron Man 3. 6, Age of Ultron. 5, Spider-Man Homecoming. 4, Captain America Civil War. 3, Captain America The Winter Soldier. 2, The Avengers. And number 1, Captain America The First Avenger. Before sharing my own ranking, I will say here that, as I've said elsewhere, I don't think Marvel Studios have made a bad film yet. They're not all stellar, some of them have faults aplenty, but they are all hugely entertaining and full of rewatch value. So how do I rank the now 20 films in the MCU? At number 20, Thor, The Dark World. This was at the bottom of your list, and mine is no different. Some good in this movie, but also just a whole lot of meh. I think that's why I ultimately ranked it where I did as well, Ryan. I don't think Thor The Dark World's bad. For whatever reason, this is the one that the BBC keep churning out. I don't know whether it's the only one they own, but um, they keep putting this one on. And every time I I, I catch it, I'll leave it on. Because there is, there is some funny to be had in Thor The Dark World. But yeah, meh. At 19, and here's the big difference from your list, Iron Man 3. Again, I don't hate this movie, not at all. There are things about it I really like, such as Downey Jr.'s performance, Tony's struggles, post-Avengers, everything about the Mandarin, including the reveal he's just a drunk actor playing a part, but I didn't like killing at all. I didn't like anything to do with the extremist plot, and the climactic battle with the various hollow Iron Man armors fighting various unnamed extremist baddies felt like clone troopers fighting battle droids. I was disconnected from the action, and I didn't really care about the flying carnage. Again, I don't think there's an issue with that. I think, yeah, I think the action bits of that film are the weakest part. I just really like how they, they develop Tony over the movies. 18, Iron Man 2. I really love the first half of this movie. I'm not a Mickey Rock fan either, but I like the way his character was set up and I loved his attack on Tony during the Grand Prix. For me, the story hits a wall after Tony and Rhodey play Rock'em Sock'em Robots at Tony's birthday party. Nick Fury shows up inexplicably to give Tony a cure for all his poisoning and also reveal quite lazily that Scarjo is a spy. What was she spying for? What intel was she gathering? How did she use it? Why is Black Widow in this movie? Why is Nick Fury in this movie? Well, I think you've answered your own question though, right? It, uh, all of Iron Man 2 is there simply to set up future films and that is ultimately why I think it fails. It doesn't really work on its own level and Mickey Rourke. Number 17, Thor. When this movie first came out, I thought the filmmakers weren't sure what kind of superhero movie they were making. That still might be the case because the movie feels very disjointed. This is a problem I have with all three Thor films. The scenes on Asgard are lifeless. The scenes on Earth are fun, though, and Hemsworth's charisma shines. As with Iron Man 2, I'm not quite sure why S.H.I.E.L.D. is in this movie other than the need to seed characters for the Avengers. The biggest problem I have when re-watching the movie today is its failure to capture the grand scope of a Thor adventure. This is a god who fights giants, but the scale never captured that. Seriously, the frost giants were like nine feet tall. What kind of crap's that? Also, Loki's plan makes no sense to me. He wasn't a trickster. He wasn't a grand manipulator. There was nothing cunning about his plan. I would have hoped a director who played Iago in a previous life would have had more respect for that. Number 16, probably a shot to a lot of people, but I have Thor Ragnarok in my bottom five. Yes, all three Thor movies make the bottom five and Ragnarok's no exception. Remember how I said all of the Thor movies feel disjointed? Well, this is the most glaring example. I can re-watch the scenes on Sakaar and Thor and Hulk and Valkyrie and the Grandmaster all day long. I love all of that, the whole subplot. 
But everything on Asgard, everything with Hela and Scourge and Heimdall, I just don't care. I was pissed off that the film murdered Odin and the Warriors 3 so casually, but then I realised I didn't miss them because the previous films never made me care about them. But they were established being Thor's best friends, and yet they're never given any other mention or noticed by him. And while Hela's Kirby-inspired appearance is awesome, I found her god-butcher powers pretty boring. The thing about the bottom five movies is they all have substantive problems with story or characters, but as I said, still entertaining. Number 15, The Incredible Hulk. I don't have a substantive problem with this film, I love it, it's great, but for me, it fails to overcome one gamma-sized obstacle, which is that it feels less and less relevant anymore. It's a great Hulk movie, and I think Norton is terrific as Banner, but after he left the franchise, it feels like this movie doesn't matter anymore. Yeah, they've brought General Ross back, but really he could be playing any military political character. The sad truth that knocks this movie down on my list is that it's the most obsolete of the MCU. Uh, again, I can't really argue with that. I think it is the most obsolete of of the, the MCU rendered that way when they fired Ed Norton. But the thing is, as a standalone Hulk movie, I really enjoy it because A, it's much better than the Ang Lee one, which was a brave film, a daring film, an attempt to do something different, but also felt like a director above the material. Trying to do a comic book movie and like, I will disregard those comic books because I am an auteur. Um... And as such, it's also the Hulk, the only Hulk movie I think we're going to get. So I'm thankful that it's great and enjoyable. And it's also the one I can just put on because of that reason. It doesn't really feel like a part of it anymore. But it is a fun film to watch. Number 14, Doctor Strange. Good origin, very entertaining. My only complaint is that I think they played this movie too safe when I really wish they'd gone weird. I adore the final confrontation with Dormammu, which is the one time I felt like they embraced the weirdness of the character. I wanted more of that, but they gave me too much of movies I'd seen before, like The Matrix and Inception. I even think the casting of Benedict Cumberbatch was playing it safe, but I still like him as an actor. I think Doctor Strange is going to go batshit crazy with Doctor Strange 2. I honestly think that the introduction of the character, they did lean into safe a little bit, and with the second one, they're going to go batshit. Number 13, Ant-Man. This has fallen down on my list very recently. Not long ago, this would have been knocking at the door of the top five. I'm a sucker for the Ant-Man character. I always love both Hank Pym and Scott Lang versions, and I think the costume and power set is cool, not a joke. And this movie did the one thing I wanted more than anything. It made little kids think Ant-Man was cool. The shrinking visuals were great, the action scene at the end in the bedroom is awesome, and Paul Rudd is fun to watch. But I can't help thinking of the Ant-Man story I wish we'd gotten. A phase one Ant-Man starring a young Hank Pym and Janet Van Dyne. Michael Douglas is fine, but he's not Hank Pym. Number 12, Ant-Man and the Wasp. This one might change when I rewatch it, but for now I like this movie slightly more than its predecessor. It's a little funnier for one thing, and Scott's relationship to his daughter is front and centre, which should always be the case. That's crucial to his character. It's why he stole the suit in the comics in the first place. Plus, this movie finally, finally gives us the Winsome Wasp in action and Evangeline Lilly kicked ass as the character. Sure, she wasn't Janet, and really neither was Michelle Pfeiffer, but she looked good in the costume and she gave little girls another hero to look up to. Um, I don't know where, obviously when I did that episode, Ant-Man and the Wasp hadn't come out. Uh, I'm kind of thinking I'd probably put it bubbling around the same place kind of that you've got it. I think I'd have it around issue, thir- uh, issue around number 13, maybe I'd have it in front of Thor Ragnarok. I mean, looking at my list now, I'd probably put Thor in front of Thor Ragnarok and Ant-Man in the Wasp around the same place I put Ant-Man. 
Um, I felt that Ant-Man and the Wasp was jolly fun, but ultimately inconsequential. And just kind of like a, a light aperitif after Infinity War. Number 10. Sorry, I've missed number 11. Number 11, Guardians of the Galaxy. Funnier and more heartfelt than either of Joss Whedon's Avengers scripts. Far better than it has any real right to be. But I didn't really care about the characters before I saw the film. When I left the theatre, it didn't make me want to read the comics. I mean either, because largely because I don't know that the comics would be anything like the film. I mean, I've not read the cosmic stuff that Andy Lanning and Dan Abnett did. That may be fun. But I, I don't know. I've never read them. Number 10, Iron Man. It seems almost unfair this movie barely makes it into the top 10 when the MCU owes pretty much everything to this film. My favourite thing about it when compared to the 19 others is how lean it is. There's no trace of fat on this movie because it's not preoccupied with world building and setting up the Avengers, which was the problem with both Thor and Iron Man 2. Number 9, Guardians of the Galaxy. Number 2, unlike the first one, the sequel did make me care about the characters. Gamora, Drax, Rocket, Peter, all more compelling and nuanced this time around. And like with Iron Man, it benefits from not trying to set up Thanos or another Infinity Stone. It just tells its story, and the soundtrack's better. Number 8, Captain America, the first Avenger. I know this is number 1 on your list, so you might not like seeing it this low on mine. But for me, it's the lesser of the Captain America movies. It's still really, really good. In fact, it is maybe the best first arc of any superhero origin movie ever because it really makes you believe in the heroism of Steve Rogers, that if he never got the super soldier serum, he'd still be every bit as noble and courageous as the Captain America we know and love. Yeah, ultimately, I think they get Steve Rogers right. I mean, like I said, Captain America would have been the easy one to parody or send up, and they actually do a good job of doing that in the film of kind of parodying that that patriotic propaganda element of the character. They do a really good job with it, and I was, I was quite impressed with it. But there's heart in Captain America, the first Avenger, that I think very few other superhero movies have come close to emulating. Number seven, Black Panther. I'm biased because Black Panther is one of my favourite Marvel heroes, and I was beyond thrilled to see the movie succeed, and in fact exceed so many expectations. It's a beautiful looking film with a great cast. Biggest problem is the action sequence are pretty meh and the white characters are all superfluous. Uh, Black Panther may rise. I'm, again, it's the only one of these other than the ones that have been out at the theatre and therefore I haven't had a chance to watch again that I haven't watched again. I'll give it a try. I will give it another go because I did enjoy it. Maybe it's just one of those things, you know, where, where everybody starts saying good things about something and when you watch it, you're kind of like, well, yeah, it was good, but I don't think it was as good as all that. Um, maybe I need to just let some of that hype go away and then come back to it later. I thought the same thing with um, Slumdog Millionaire, which uh, I'm a big fan of Danny Boyle's movies, and that one was just so hyped that when I saw it, I was like, is it that good, really? But I watched it again when all the hype had died down and was pleasantly surprised by how dark and, and uh, how dark it was how tonally dark it was. It wasn't the feel-good movie of the summer, which is what people are hyping it up as. So maybe I'll, I'll give Black Panther another go. Well, I know I'll give Black Panther another go. Number six, The Avengers. On a recent episode of the Fire and Water podcast where Shag hosted a bracket-style competition of superhero movies, I argued that The Avengers is the best superhero film of all time, and I agree that it should be considered the gold standard from now on. That's my objective take on it. Subjectively, however, it just misses the top five. Too much time spent with Nick Fury and S.H.I.E.L.D. What have you got against Nick Fury and S.H.I.E.L.D., Ryan? <laughs> I I love the I agree with you. I think the Avengers is... The Avengers up there with Superman and Captain America for me. It really is. More 
I mean, time will judge, as time always does. And obviously, we're coming at this from a different angle as other moviegoers will come at it in future generations. But there was a lot riding on it and the fact that they didn't cock it up and in fact exceeded our expectations when they made it. There was never another first chance to do what they did with that film and they didn't mess it up. And that alone gets it all the credit in the world for me. Unlike certain other superhero movies where they bring their characters together for the first time and can never be a first time ever again and did kind of cock it up. Number five, Spider-Man Homecoming. All the wonderful things about Tom Holland and getting Spidey back to his teenage roots have already been set, so I'll focus on what I think is the movie's biggest success. After so many failed attempts, this movie finally delivers a masterful Green Goblin. Oh sure, they called Michael Keaton's character the Vulture, but he was really a blue-collar Norman Osborn. What always set the Goblin above the wall crawlers of the rogues is the personal connection, that Norman is the father of someone Peter loves. How big a sucker punch did Homecoming land when Peter knocked on Lizzie's door to see his enemy on the other side? And the scene in the car when Toombs figures it out? Chilling. Oh, couldn't agree more. Masterful performance from Michael Keaton and Tom Holland plays it really well as well. I just wish they'd introduce a little bit more angst into the Spider-Man character. I kind of think all of the movies, they've either gone overboard with it, like in the Sam Raimi movies, or they've not got enough of it like in the Marvel ones. But we'll, we'll see what the sequel's like, which I'm very much looking forward to. Number four, Age of Ultron. This is the one I often have the hardest time justifying because the movie doesn't feel whole. At two and a half hours long, the movie still feels like it needed another 20 minutes to develop the Maximoff twins and give Ultron's evolution a little more depth. Whedon crammed so much into this movie, he may have should have split it up. But he didn't, and something about it just seems a little off. And yet, I love every scene in the movie. Maybe they don't hold tightly together as they should, but each scene individually is rich with characterization or action. Yeah, I've reappraised Age of Ultron an awful lot since rewatching it. I've watched it twice this past year, and I think you do have to pay attention to it. You have to pay attention to the dialogue. There are lines of dialogue in that movie, possibly looped dialogue that was added after scenes were cut, but still, lines of dialogue in there that really do help with the, the flow of the plot. And you have to be entertaining for it. And yeah, Age of Ultron, I think Age of Ultron is just deeper than the Avengers. It's got more more character to it. I think it's a better, I think it's a better, more comprehensive, fuller, richer story than the Avengers. Anyway, maybe I'm a prisoner of the moment, but right now I've got three Avengers Infinity War. Speaking of loving every single scene, this movie has endless rewatch value. Even if the narrative didn't hold together, which it does miraculously well, you could watch solo scenes or out of order just to see the characters riff off each other the way they do. Such an achievement in the franchise by basically making the 19th movie a season finale. And this movie made me love Thanos in the way the comics have never been able to do. Yeah, I watched Infinity War again with my family just recently. Loved it even more second time around. I think on my list, I actually think... Looking at it now, I think I may change certain things around. I'd probably want to bring up Age of Ultron. I'd, I'd, I think I'd have to put... I think I'd have to slot Infinity War in at number four or number three for me. I mean, again, like you, it may be, you know, that I'm captured by the moment. But at the, at the moment, that's where it would live. The last two are hard, but right now I've got number two, Captain America the Winter Soldier, and number one, Captain America Civil War. 
I actually think The Winter Soldier is the best Captain America movie, but Civil War is the best MCU movie, if that makes sense. Oh, no, it makes perfect sense. As much as I love seeing Captain America punch Nazis, I'm much more interested in seeing who he is in the 21st century. That was a problem I had with the first Avengers film. I don't think Whedon really knew what to do with Captain America. He didn't have his voice yet. That changed by the time he got to Age of Ultron, because by then we'd had The Winter Soldier. This movie has my favourite action sequence in the MCU. It introduces the Falcon, who's one of my favourite characters, and the climax with Steve going into the water as the helicarrier crashes is the moment from Steve's origin going into the icy Atlantic that we never saw in the first Captain America movie. The Winter Soldier answers who Captain America is in the 21st century, and it does it wonderfully. But Civil War continues that thread, and introduces Black Panther, and the MCU version of Spider-Man and Giant-Man and Tony Stark's best performance since the first Iron Man and a surprisingly good villain in Zemo and a massive superhero brawl to finish the second act only to be followed by a heartbreaking, nerve-wracking personal fight as the movie's climax. Civil War just pushes too many of my fan service buttons to not be my favourite. So there you have it, my response to your ranking. I'm sure we can compare again this time next year after Captain Marvel, Avengers Forever and Spider-Man Far From Home have come out and obliterated our lists. Always enjoy listening to the show, Andy. Keep up the good work, Ryan. And thank you very much, Ryan, for emailing in. That was uh, an exceptionally well-thought-out, well-written email. I very much enjoyed reading it. That'll do for tonight because I've got things that I have to go and do, I'm afraid. So as usual, we're a proud member of the Two True Freaks Network. And if you want to email me like Ryan did, you can email me on heykidscomics at virginmedia.com. If you want to keep the lights on, which, why would you not? Why would you not want more of this shit? Go to 2 Freak, click on the link, buy your stuff through Amazon. Through that link, we get the kickback. I'll be back next time. Again, a couple of episodes have been written. One has almost been completely written, which is probably what we'll end up next, which is the animation episode, Longer Borning. Um, I decided ultimately to focus on Battle of the Planets, Spider-Man and his amazing friends, and Dungeons and Dragons. That'll be next time. And remember, it's all gonna be okay. Toodaloo.